TakeCareOf.com You know your body. Take care of no science. Let's work together. Find the right vitamins, protein, and now collagen too. Personalized just for you. Healthy doesn't have to be hard. We take care of takes it easy. Take the quiz. Tell care of a little about yourself and they're good listeners. Get nutrients at work. Get your personalized recommendation backed by science and delivered to you. Stick with it long term. Keep the conversation going. Careful just as your health needs change. A routine tailored to you. Care of will help you create a health plan with vitamins, supplements, and more that help you feel your best today and support you long term. Care of is with you. Once you made your tailored plan, Care of will help you stick with it, track your supplements, learn about how they work, and get new recommendations as your health changes. All in your handy app. Say hello to your new healthy habit. Honest guidance. Careful promise to be honest with you. That means careful show you the research and be transparent about how established it is. Careful don't pretend all supplements have equal levels of scientific evidence or traditional history because that isn't the truth. But careful always show you their work and tailor their guidance to you as an individual. Better ingredients. Care's research and development team has traveled the globe so they can provide the most effective, bioavailable, and sustainable ingredients possible. Care's is transparent about their supply chain because they build products they want to take, and then they deliver them straight to your door. SimplySafe.com Whole home protection. Protection for every window, room, and door against intruders, fires, water damage, medical emergencies, and more. All, all monitored 24-7 by professionals ready to dispatch police. Everything you need to know. Experts choose SimplySafe Home Security. Named the best home security overall by U.S. News and World Report and awarded by Popular Mechanics and more. Live professional alerts. Simply Safe's monitoring staff calls you when trouble is detected and stays with you until it's solved. Dispatch faster with visual verification. Adding visual verification to your monitoring plan lets Simply Safe verify your alarm is real. So please can dispatch faster. It's a lot less expensive. Simply cuts out the middleman and mark markup so you get more security for less with no contact. Prepared for the unexpected. Lose power, lose Wi-Fi, someone attacks the system, natural disaster, Simply Safe is ready. Protects against fires and water damage. More than just intruders, Simply Safe pros monitor against leaks, floods, fires, and more. Keep an eye inside and out. With HD security cameras for indoors and out, see what's happening all the time. Designed to disappear. For the tiny size of SimpliSafe sensors to easy one-touch control means you'll never notice your security system. Detects people, ignores pets. Motion sensors use a precision human form detection or algorithm. Compare your security options. Traditional home security monitored by 
professionals, 36 month contract monitoring costs, 37 to 53 a month, 37 to 53 dollars a month, hard wire, needs landline, poor rating on Trustpilot, super safe the better way, monitored by professionals, no contracts, wireless, no drilling or landline required, great rating on Trustpilot, easy to set up yourself in no time. Here's how it works. Choose your security sensors. Mount SuperSafe will walk you through exactly what your home needs and ship it to your front door in under a week. Set it up in just a few moment, minutes. No tools needed or let one of SuperSafe's pros do it for you. Sensors guard all your rooms and entry points. If there's a trouble, SuperSafe's monitoring center will call you and if needed, dispatch authorities. More reasons to choose Simply Safe. Arm, disarm from anywhere. Forgot to arm your system. Need to let someone in. Do it right from your phone anytime. Almost never change your batteries. Batteries last for almost a decade in Simply Safe's entry sensors, the best lifespan in the in industry. Battery life may vary based on use. Alexa, arm my system. Use your system with Alexa, Google Assistant, August Locks, Apple Watch, and more. Keep an eye on cabinets, safes, and more. Secret alert quietly alerts you if someone accesses private areas without opening an alarm. Without sounding an alarm. Customize for your home. Super safe, customize. The right system for your home's needs. Incredible range. Many wireless security systems struggle to cover your entire house. SimpSafe can cover large homes with ease. Custom alerts for friends and family. Set up text alerts so friends can family can stay in the know. Duress pin. If someone forces you to disarm your system, your duress pin will securely alert the authorities. Meet the station. Busy station. The brains comes with a built-in cells connection to rapidly alert Simpsons Emergency Dispatch Center. Try it, test it, love it, or return it. Test Simpsons in your home for 60 days. Your system arrives ready to work. No drilling or tools needed. If you aren't 100% satisfied, Return it for a full refund and will even pay return shipping. Good morning. Hope you're ready for this week's true crime story. The disappearance of Mara Murray. Mara Murray, born May 4, 1982, is an American woman who disappeared on the evening of February 9, 2004 after a car crash near Route 112 near Woodsville, New Hampshire, a village in Haverville. Her whereabouts remain unknown. She was a 21-year-old nursing student completing her junior year at the University of Massachusetts Amherst at the time of her disappearance. On the afternoon of Monday, February 9th, before she left the university campus, she emailed her professors and work supervisor writing that she was taking a week off due to a death in the family. According to her family, there had not been a death. At 7.27 p.m., a local woman reported a car accident on a sharp corner of Route 112 adjacent to her home. A passing motorist who also lived nearby stopped at the scene and asked the woman driving the car if she needed assistance. She declined, claiming to have called roadside assistance. 
<clears throat> Upon arriving home several minutes later, the motorist reported the accident to emergency services. At 7.46 p.m., law enforcement appeared, arrived at the scene, but the woman had disappeared. Police traced the vehicle to Murray and initially treated her as a missing person, on the belief that she may have wanted to disappear voluntarily. This speculation was based on a travel preparations about what she had confided nothing to friends or family and no obvious evidence of foul play. In 2009, Murray's case was given to the New Hampshire Cold Case Division as those are handling it as a suspicious missing persons case. In the years after Murray's disappearance, her case received media attention on 2020 and disappeared and also garnered speculation on internet message boards and forums with theories ranging from abduction to voluntary disappearance. In 2017, the case was the subject of a documentary series on the Accident Network, which described Murray's disappearance as the first crime mystery of the social media age, having occurred days after the launch of Facebook. Background, Early Life Mara Murray was born May 4, 1982, in Hanson, Massachusetts, the fourth child of Frederick Fred and Lori Murray. She had an older brother, Fred, two older sisters, Kathleen and Julie, and a younger brother, Kurt. Mara was raised in Irish Catholic household. When she was six, her parents divorced, after which Mara lived primarily with her mother. Murray graduated from Whitman Hanson Regional High School, where she was a star athlete on the school's track team. She was subjected to the United States Military Academy in West Point, New York, where she studied chemical engineering for three semesters. After her freshman year, she transferred to the University of Ma Massachusetts Amherst to study nursing. Murray had stolen makeup, less than $5 worth, from a commission commissary at Fort Knox during her time at West Point while on a training expedition. This resulted in an honor code violation. Murray was allowed to leave West Point without getting officially expelled, which thereby allowed her to transfer to the UMass Amherst nursing program. Prior to disappearance, in November 2003, three months before her disappearance, Murray admitted to using a stolen credit card to order food from several restaurants, including one in Hadley, Massachusetts. The charge was continued in December to, to be dismissed after three months' good behavior. On the evening of February 5, 2004, Murray spoke on the phone with her older sister Kathleen while she was on duty at her campus security job. They discussed Kathleen's relationship problems with her fiancé around 10.30 p.m. while still on her shift. It was reported that Murray broke down in tears when her supervisor arrived at her desk. Murray was just completely zoned out. No reaction at all. She was unresponsive. The supervisor escorted Murray back to her dorm, around, dorm room around 1.20 a.m. when asked what was wrong. Murray said two words, my sister. The contents of this whole call remain unknown until 2017 when Kathleen publicly explained the conversation. Kathleen, a recovering alcoholic, had been discharged from a rehabilitation clinic that evening, and on the way home, her fiance took her to a liquor store, which caused an emotional breakdown. On, Friday, on Saturday, September 7th, Murray's father, Fred, arrived in Amherst. He told some investigators he and Murray went car shopping that afternoon and later went to dinner with a friend of his daughter. Murray dropped her father off at his motel room and borrowing his Toyota Corolla returned to campus and to attend a dorm party. She arrived at 10.30 p.m. at 2.30 a.m. on Sunday, February 8th. She left the party at 3.30 a.m. and route to her father's motel. She struck a guardrail on Route 9 in Hadley, causing near $10,000 worth of damage to her father's car. The responding officer wrote an accident report, but there was there is no rec documentation of sobriety field tests being conducted. Murray was driven to her father's motel and stayed in his room and 
the rest of the morning at 4.49 a.m. There was a call phone. There was a cell phone call placed to a boyfriend from Fred's phone. The participants and content of the phone call are unknown. Later on Sunday morning, Fred Murray learned the damages to his vehicle would be covered by his auto insurance. He ran the car, dropped Murray off at the university, and departed for Connecticut. At 11.30 that night, Fred called his daughter's reminder to obtain accident forms for the Registry of Motor Vehicles. They agreed to talk again Monday night to discuss the forms and fill out the insurance claim via phone. Monday, February 9, 2004. Preparations and Departure We don't know why Maura left school. Clearly, it was her intention to leave school. Clearly, she hadn't a destination in mind when she came up north. What clearly did not take sense is that she didn't confide in anyone. New Hampshire State Police Lieutenant John Scaranza. At the midnight on Monday, February 9th, Murray used her personal computer to search MapQuest for directions to the Brookshire House in Burlington, Vermont. The first reported contact Murray had with anyone on February 9th was at 1 p.m., where she emailed her boyfriend, I got your messages, but honestly, I don't feel I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call, though. She also made a phone call inquiring about renting a condominium at the same Bartlett, New Hampshire Condo Association, which with which her family had vacationed in the past. Telephone records indicate the last the call lasted three minutes. The owner did not rent the condo to Murray. At 1.13 p.m., Murray called a fellow nursing student for reasons unknown. At 1.24 p.m., Murray emailed a work supervisor at the nursing school facility that she would be out of town for a week due to a death in her family. No one in her family has had died. She also said she would contact them when she returned. At 2.05 p.m., Murray called a number which provided recorded information about booking hotels in Stowe, Vermont. They called last, the call lasted approximately five minutes. At 2.18 p.m., she telephoned her boyfriend and left a voice message promising him they would talk later. This call ended after one minute. In her car, Murray packed clothing, toiletries, college textbooks, and birth control pills. When her room was searched later, campus police discovered most of her belongings packed in buckets and the art removed from the walls. It's not clear whether Murray packed them that day, but police at the time asserted she had been packed between Sunday night and Monday morning on top of the boxes of a printed email to Murray's boyfriend indicating trouble in their relationship. Around 3.30 p.m., she drove off the campus on her black 1996 Saturn sedan. Classes at the university had been canceled that day due to a snowstorm. At 3.40 p.m., Murray withdrew $280 from an ATM. Close circuit footage showed she was alone at a nearby liquor store. Murray purchased about $40 worth of alcohol beverages, including Bailey's ice cream, Kahlua, vodka, and a box of Francia wine. Security footage again shows she was alone when she made that purchase. At some point in the day, she also picked up exit report forms from the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles. Murray then left Amherst between 4 and 5 p.m., presumably via Interstate 91 North. She called to check her voicemail at 4.37 p.m., the last recorded use of her cell phone. To date, there is no indication she had informed anyone of her destination or any evidence that she had chosen one. Disappearance. Accident site. NH Route 112. Right angle... No. Right angle turn face noises. The direction Murray was believed to have been traveling a blue road tied to tree marks the crash site. 7.27 p.m. Report of car accident. 
Sometime after 7 p.m., a Woodville, New Hampshire resident heard a loud thump outside her house. Through her window, she could see a car up against a snowbank along Route 112, also known as the Wild Aminosuck Road. The car pointed west on the eastbound side of the road. She telephoned the Grafton County Sheriff's Department at 7.27 p.m. to report the accident. According to the 911 log, the woman claimed to have, been, have seen a man smoking a cigarette inside the car. However, she later stated that she had not seen a man nor a person smoking a cigarette, but rather had seen what appeared to be a red light glowing from inside the car, potentially from a cell phone. At about the same time, another neighbor called... Neighbor saw the car as well as someone walking around the vehicle. She witnessed a third neighbor pull up alongside the vehicle. That neighbor, neighbor, a school bus driver returning home, noticed a young woman was not bleeding or visibly injured but cold and shivering. He offered to help to telephone for help. She asked him not to call the police. One police report says pleaded and assured him she already called AAA. AA has no record of any such call. Knowing there was no cellular reception in the area, the bus driver continued home and called the police. His call was received by the Sheriff's Department at 7.43 p.m. He was able to see Mary's car while he made the call, but did notice several cars pass on the road before the police arrived. Another call, local resident driving home from the work claimed she passed by the scene around 7.37 p.m. and saw a police SUV parked face-to-face -face with Mary's car. She pulled over briefly, but and did not see anyone inside or outside the cars and decided to continue home. This witness claims contradicts the official police log which has Haverhill police arriving nine minutes later. 7.46 p.m. Police arrive at the, arrival at the scene. A black second generation Saturn S series identical to the car Mari was driving according to the official police log. At 7.46 p.m. a Haverhill police officer arrived at the scene no one was inside or around the car. The car had impacted on the tree on the driver's side of the vehicle, severely damaging the left headlight, and had pushed the car's radiator into the fan, rendering it inoper inoperable. The car's windshield was cracked on the driver's side, and both airboats had deployed. The car was locked. Inside and outside the car, he discovered red stains that looked to be red wine. Inside the car, the officer found an empty beer bottle and a damaged box of Franzia wine on the rear seat. In addition, he found an AA card, AAA card issued to Murray, blank accident report forms, gloves, compact discs, makeup, diamond jewelry, driving directions to Burlington, Vermont, Murray's favorite stuffed animal, and not without peril, a book about climbing, mountain climbing in the White Mountains. Missing were Murray's debit card, credit cards, and cell phone, none of which had been located or used since her disappearance. The police later reported some of the bottles of purchased liquor were also missing. Journalist Joe McGee, writing for Quincy, Massachusetts Patriot Ledger, summarized the incident at a hairpin turn. She went off the road. Her car hit a tree. At that point, a person came along who was driving a bus. It was a neighbor. He asked her if she needed help. She refused. About 10 minutes later, police showed up to the scene, and Mara Murray was gone. 8 to 9.30 p.m., alleged sighting. Between 8 and 8.30 p.m., a contractor returning home from Franconia, Saw a young person move quickly on foot eastbound on Route 112, about 45 miles, 68 kilometers east, where Murray's vehicle was discovered. He noted that the young person was wearing jeans, a dark coat, a light-colored hood, and a light-colored hood. He did not report it to the police immediately due to his own confusion of dates, only discovering three months later, when reviewing his work was that he might have spotted the young person the same night Murray disappeared. 
The responding officer and the bus driver drove around the area center for Murray just before 8 p.m. EMS and a fire truck arrived to clear the scene. By 8.49 p.m., the car had been towed to a local garage at about 9.30 p.m. The responding officer left a rag believed to have been part of Murray's emergency roadside kit was discovered stuffed into the side of his muffler pipe. Authorities would only refer to Murray as missing at 12 p.m. the next day, almost 24 hours after the last confirmed sighting of her. Search efforts. Murray's car was found in Murray last night in Woodsville, New Hampshire. She had inquired about renting a condominium Bartlett. Murray had searched hotel reservations in Burlington and Stowe, Vermont, on her computer over the telephone before crashing her car in and disappearing from Woodsville. Initial investigation, 2004 to 2005. February, June 24th. February to June 24th, 2004. At 12.36 p.m. the following day, February 10th, uh, beyond the lookout report for Murray was issued. She was reported as wearing a dark coat, jeans, and a black backpack. A voicemail was left on Fred Murray's home answering machine at 3.20 p.m. stating that a car had been found abandoned. He was working out of state and did not receive this call. At 5 p.m., Murray's oldest sister contacted her father to tell him of the situation. He then contacted the Haverhill Police Department and was told that if Murray was not reported safe by the following morning, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department would start a search. At 5.17 p.m., Murray was first referred to as missing by the Haverhill Police. On February 11th, Murray's father arrived before dawn at Haverhill. At 8 a.m., New Hampshire Fish and Game, the Murrays and others began, began to search. A police dog tracked the scent for one of Murray's gloves 100 yards east from where the vehicle had been discovered, but lost the scent. This suggested to police she'd left the area in another car. At 5 p.m., Murray's boyfriend and his parents arrived in Haverhill. He was interrogated in private and then was joined by his parents for questioning. At 7 p.m., the police said they believed Murray came to the area to either run away or commit suicide. Her family believed this was unlikely. Murray's boyfriend had turned off his cell phone during his flight to Haverhill. At some point, he received a voicemail that he believed was the sound of Murray sobbing. The call was traced to a calling card issued to the American Red Cross. On February 12th, Murray's father and her boyfriend held an evening press conference in Bethlehem, New Hampshire, and the next day, the first press conference was published. At 3.05 p.m., the police reported Murray might be headed to the can Camagus Highway area as she was listed as endangered and possibly suicidal. The police report also stated Murray was intoxicated at the crash site, although the bus driver had said she did not disappear. She did not appear impaired. The Haver Hill police chief said that Argus said that she's upset or suicidal. A week after Murray's disappearance, her father and boyfriend were interviewed by CNN's American Morning. Murray's family expanded their search into Vermont. This made the authorities there had not been informed of her disappearance. Although missing person cases are normally handled by local state police, the FBI joined the investigation 10 days after she disappeared. The FBI interviewed family from Massachusetts and the Haver Hill Police Chief announced that the search was now nationwide. 10 days after her disappearance, New Hampshire Fish and Game conducted a, a second ground and air search using a helicopter and the, with a thermal image imaging camera, tracking dogs and cadaver dogs. Murray's older sister discovered a ripped white pair of women's underwear lying in the snow on a secluded trail near French Pond Road on February 26th, but DNA tests found that the underwear did not belong to Murray. 
At the end of February, the police returned the items found in Murray's car to her family. On March 2nd, the family checked out of their motel. Exhausted from the surge, Fred Murray returned nearly every weekend to continue searching. In April, Haverhill police informed him of complaints of trespassing on private property. The March 2004 disappearance of Brianna Maitland in Montgomery, Vermont, 66 miles, 110 kilometers away from Burris, last sighting in Woodsville, drew comparisons from media and law enforcement due to similarities and disappearances. However, state police had stated there are no links between the two cases. In April and again in June, New Hampshire and Vermont police dismissed any connection between Murray's cases and Maitland's. In a press release, they stated they believe Mara was headed for an unknown destination and may have accepted a ride in order to continue that, to that location, adding that they had discovered no evidence that a crime had been committed that dismissed the possibility of a serial killer being involved. In Ju- July 2004 to December 2005, on July 1st, police retrieved the items found in Murray's vehicle from her family for a forensic analysis. On July 13th, a one-mile radius search was performed by nearly 100 searchers, including state troopers, rescued personnel and volunteers. It was a fourth search around the crash area and the first search performed without snow on the ground. Authorities were most interested in locating the black backpack Mary had in her possession, but not found in her car. Police state, stated the search discovered nothing conclusive. In late 2004, a man allegedly gave him her his father a rusty stained knife that belonged to the man's brother, who had a criminal past and lived less than a mile from where the car was discovered. Her brother and his brother's girlfriend were said to have acted strangely at the disappearance of the man's brother claimed he believed the knife had been used to kill Murray. Several days after the knife was given to Murray's father, the man's brother allegedly scrapped his Volvo. Family members of the man who turned in the knife claimed he had made up the story in order to obtain reward money in the investigation and that he had a history of drug use. In 2005, Fred Murray petitioned New Hampshire Governor Craig Benson for help in the search and appeared on the Montel Williams Show in November 2004 to publicize the case. On February 9, 2005, the one-year anniversary of Murray's disappearance, a service was held where the car was found and a father met briefly with New Hampshire Governor John Lynch. In late 2005, Fred Murray filed a suit against several law enforcement agents with the aim of seeing files on the case, on November 1, 2005, a user named Tom Davies logged into a message board called Not Without Peril, which was dedicated to discussion of Murray's disappearance and claimed to have seen a black backpack behind a restroom at Pimagawasa Overlook, around 30 miles, 48 kilometers from Woodsville. Murray had owned the black backpack. Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Strelson stated that law enforcement was aware of the backpack, but did not disclose whether it had been taken for forensic testing. Subsequent searches, 2006 to 2010. New Hampshire League of Investigators, 10 retired police officers and detectives, and the Molly Bish Foundation started working on the case in 2006. Tom Shamshack, a former police chief and a member of the Licensed Private Detective Association of Massachusetts, said it appears that this is beyond, this is something beyond a mere missing persons case, something ominous and could have happened here. The Arkansas group, Let's Bring Them Home, offered a $75,000 award in 2007 for information that, that, that could solve her disappearance. In October 2006, volunteers led a two-day search within a few miles of where Murray's car was found in the closet of an A-frame house approximately one mile, 1.6 kilometers from the crash site. Cadaver dogs allegedly went bonkers, possibly identifying the presence of human remains. The house had formerly been the residence of a man invaded by his brother who had 
given Fred Murray the rusty knife in 2004. A sample of carpet from the home was sent to the New Hampshire State Police, but the results were never released to the public. In July 2008, volunteers led another two-day search throughout wooded areas in Haverhill. The group consisted of dog teams and licensed private investigators. Murray's case was never... Nuria's case was one of many cited by proponents of a statewide cold case unit for New Hampshire in 2009. Her case was sub subsequently added to the newly established cold case unit later that year. In 2010, Fred Murray pub publicly criticized the police investigation for treating disappearance as a missing person case and down to criminal matter and was called on the FBI to join the investigation. Jeffrey St Strelson said in February 2009 that the investigation is still active. We don't know if Mara is a victim, but the state is treating it as a potential homicide. It may be a missing person case, but it's being handled as a criminal investigation. Further developments, 2001, 2011 to present. In early 2012, observers of the Murray case began taking note of a YouTube user named MR112Dirtbag, who posted a series of online videos that some believe contained cryptic clues to Murray's disappearance. Both Murray's family and professional criminals dismissed the videos as a cruel and hideous ploy for attention. In 2014, on the 10th anniversary of Murray's disappearance, Strelzen stated that we haven't had any credible sightings of Mara since the night she disappeared in an article published in the New York Daily News. On the 10th anniversary of his daughter's disappearance, it was reported that Fred Murray believed she was dead and had been abducted the night of her disappearance. On February 9, 2017, the 13th anniversary of Murray's disappearance, Strelzen wrote in an email, the Boston Globe is still an open case with periods of activity, and at times it goes dormant. There are no new updates to share at this time. In February 2019, the 15th anniversary of Murray's disappearance, Fred Murray reiterated his belief that his daughter is dead, as well as his suspicions about the nearby house that Cadaver Dogs responded to, stating, That's my daughter, I do believe. In early April, excavation was done within the basement of the house. Fred Murray had previously wanted to search the home, but the owners did not cooperate. Following sale of the property, its new owners allowed several subjects of the property since February. The excavation conducted in April, early April found absolutely nothing other than what appears to be a piece of pottering or old piping. Significance. Murray's disappearance has been cited as the first crime mystery of the me social media age and generated speculation from the media and the public, specifically on the internet and online forums and message boards. Writing for Boston Magazine in 2014, Bill Jensen noted now at least, now at least online it often seems that there's no such thing as a cold case, but when Murray, Mara Murray disappeared, the social web was in its infancy. There was no YouTube and no Twitter. On the day Mara went missing, Facebook was five days old, and so you can read the history of her case as a parable about the evolution of online sleuthing. In 2005, active discussion of Murray's disappearance was documented on websleuths.com, and in 2007, Facebook and MySpace pages were created dedicated to helping finding, find her. On the internet, Mara's disappearance is a first a perfect obsession, a puzzle of clues that offers a tantalizing illusion. If the right armchair detective connects the right dots, maybe this unsolvable case can be solved. And so every day the case attracts new crews analyzing and dissecting and reconstructing the details of a story with a worn commission-like fervor. Bill Jensen, Boston, 2014. Media Depictions. An episode of 2020 compared Murray's case to that of Brooke Wilberger, who went missing in Oregon a few months after her disappearance and was later found murdered. Murray was referenced in two episodes and uh, disappeared in both Season 1, Episode 6, and Season 4, Episode 7. Murray's, dis 
Mara's disappearance was the subject of the nonfiction thriller True Crime Addict, How I Lost Myself in the Mysterious Disappearance of Murray, Mara Murray by author and journalist James Renner. In the book, Renner proposed the theory that Mara Murray traveled into New Hampshire with a tandem driver and may have disappeared willingly and started a new life elsewhere due to fears her pending credit card fraud would, case would prevent her being hired as a nurse or less likely was murdered by someone she knew. Murray's father, Fred, and immediate family have disputed this theory. Fred Murray stated that he believes his daughter was abducted and is dead. The podcast Crime Junkie did a two-part series on the case. Thank you for listening to this Missing True Crime series. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope you stay safe during this coronavirus pandemic that extended to 2021. As we look forward to enormously, if that can ever happen. Have a good week, and as always, thank you for listening.